Okay, let's open back up to Revelation 14. We're in verse 8. Verse 8 is part of a larger context. Chapter 14 all goes together. And it goes together with chapters 12 through 14. In chapters 12 through 14, we have a parenthesis in the book of Revelation, which is common. John begins to trace the chronology through Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, and at times the chronology pauses and he steps back and God reveals to him a bigger picture of things that are going on. Revelation 12 through 14 is one of these parentheses in which we see the age-old war in both heaven and in earth between the dragon, which is Satan, and the seed of the woman, which is ultimately Messiah and the people of Israel. The church is no longer on earth. It's been raptured out. That's why the Antichrist blasphemes those that dwell in heaven during his rule and his efforts to extinguish Israel. And so in this greater context, we've had the heavenly campaign between Michael and the dragon of this war. There was an earthly campaign in chapter the latter part of chapter 12 and chapter 13 showed the the, the major characters, the beast and the false prophet. And now in chapter 14, we have what's called the victory campaign. And in chapter 14, this victory of the woman and Messiah or Israel and her Messiah over the dragon and his beast and false prophet um, is revealed to us. And then from chapter 14 on, it goes into more detail. Just like chapter 1 in Genesis gives us a summary picture of God's creation in the Garden of Eden. And then starting in chapter 2, it goes back and gives us more detail. So chapter 14 is a summary of the end of all things, the victory. And then the rest of the book will go to describe that in more detail. It's like when we think about World War II in American history. There are certain images that when they come to mind, they're worth a thousand words. Snapshots, worth a thousand words. When we see an image like this from World War II, it's worth a thousand words. It ultimately communicates to us the victory of the Allies over Germany and, and Japan. This is an image from the Pacific Theater. It's a snapshot worth a thousand words. When we see this image, the landing on the beach... In 1944, in northern France, North Normandy, we think victory. This was the beginning of the end for Germany. It's a snapshot of victory. And just like we associate these snapshots when we think about history and other events, that's what the Bible's doing here. It's written to common people in a way that common people understand. So we have four snapshots of victory. The first five verses are a snapshot of assembly. The assembly of the Jewish witnesses with their Messiah atop the rubble of Mount Zion. And I compared that to this image here on Mount Suribachi, Iwo Jima. And then in verses 6 through 12, we have what are, is a snapshot of judgment. When we think about judgment on Nazi Germany, this is an adequate snapshot right here. Because what was it? Not even barely a year later, the, the, the Nazi surrendered. Uh, what was it, June 6th, 1944? And so that's what we have here in verses 6 through 12, a snapshot of judgment. And so we're in the midst of that, and we've been talking about verses 6 and 7, the everlasting gospel. There's three angelic messengers here that deliver messages of judgment. 
The first one preaches the everlasting gospel to those that dwell upon the earth. And we use that to talk about the four forms of the gospel that can be found in the New Testament. Not four gospels, but four forms in terms of emphasis. It's all good news. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God's grace, what Paul calls my gospel, emphasizing Christ's place as the head of the church, and then the God, everlasting gospel. God is creator. He's coming to judge the earth. And to those of us who have been saved, it's all good news. And then we get in verse 8 to the second angelic messenger. So we've got three angelic messengers that sum up this snapshot of judgment. And I want to look at verse 8 today, and it's a short verse, but it begs lots of questions that force us to go back to the beginning of the Bible. You know, there's so much in Revelation that completes or fulfills what began in Genesis. So we often have to go back to Genesis to understand what's going on. Chapter 14, verse 8. And this is... I want to get rid of my gum. I'm sorry. Um, I better stick it on my cup because it'll be left on the pulpit. I was preaching at a church up in Alaska and I left the gum on the pulpit and I really think I offended the pastor when he found it up there later. I forgot to get it back. So I had to apologize. Um... But uh, this is following the preaching of the everlasting gospel. This angel flying through heaven, declaring to the people of the earth to worship God and give glory to Him because the hour of His judgment is come. Just like when the Allies landed at Normandy Beach, it was obvious that the hour of Nazi Germany's judgment would come, even though it wouldn't be for another year. This was as good as done. So we're nearing the end of the tribulation, but we're not quite there. The judgment is as good as done. And then in verse 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is fallen. Babylon represents throughout Scripture the world system. The world politic. The way things are when man tries to run it apart from God. This world system began not with Nebuchadnezzar at Babylon. It began at Babel when this kingdom was established by a man named Nimrod. This world system that began at Babel and has tried to assimilate time and time again ever since, coming as close to Genesis 11 as possible when we get to this one world government of Antichrist, it's broken. It's broken without hand. It's over. It's done. No more. No more world system. It's fallen. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. That's good news to me when the governments of this world are finished. Even this government. It's good news. It's good news to me that everything that has infiltrated our own country and our own halls of government will one day fall. It'll be done. And we won't have to rely on <coughs> sinful men to lead us. Or politicians who make promises but don't keep them. We can live under the rule and reign of a righteous king. And his government 
literal kingdom coming to this earth will not be the world system. It won't be the body politic. Now when this angel cries, Babylon is fallen, some say this is proof that the literal city of Babylon will be rebuilt in modern day Iraq in the plain of Shinar. And that it will be a capital of the one world government. Could be. I guess that's possible. That city's not been rebuilt today. There's no one living there. It's not a capital of any world government. But it would make sense that the center of Antichrist one world government would return to the same place where in unity man once made its capital and attempted to overthrow God's authority. That's what Satan does through Antichrist to overthrow God's authority. It makes sense that he would set up a capital in the exact same place where man tried to do it before. 2,000 years before Christ was born. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden. It's like Satan trying to get back at God. What made Satan so angry, if you study the Scriptures, is there was a time when Satan was the anointed cherub. And he was put in charge of God's uh, creation, you could say, His original creation. And he was in the Garden of God. He was in Eden ruling and reigning. Something happened and Satan tried to invade heaven and take over and be like God and as a result that original creation was completely overthrown and destroyed. We don't know anything about it. Nothing about it. And then God decided to begin anew and He created the heavens and the earth and He had man to replenish the earth which tells us there was something here before. And where He put man to govern was in Eden. The very place that Satan had been. God took man and put him there to do what Satan was supposed to do and that made Satan angry. So he immediately came to the same spot where he had been overthrown and tried to seduce the man and the woman and was successful. So it makes sense that that place would rise again. I mean, the Bible tells us the Jewish temple will be rebuilt in the days of the tribulation. It's very possible that this city could be rebuilt and could happen very quickly. I've got an article here from 2009. It says this, January 13, 2009, the government of Iraq is moving forward with plans to protect the archaeological remains of the ancient city of Babylon in preparation for building a modern city of Babylon. The project originally started by the late Saddam Hussein is aimed eventually at attracting scores of cultural tourists from all over the world to see the glories of Mesopotamia's most famous city. What more, the Obama administration is contributing $700,000 toward the Future of Babylon project through the State Department's budget. They say Babylon will be reborn, and they're right, it will be. Stay tuned. Kind of interesting. I have a short video I'd like for you to watch that I found from 2000. Um, let's see here. It was 2015. Um, 
it's just about three minutes long. I just thought you'd find it interesting because it shows actually some scenes from the site of ancient Babylon. They're hauling away brick from the ancient city of Babylon. Yet again, vandalizing ancient heritage. These men are with Iraq's state board of antiquities and heritage, and the bricks aren't Babylonian. They date back to the era of Saddam Hussein. We've done a lot of cleaning here, removing garbage and piled up, uh, removing uh, dead trees, broken. We, right now, we're working over there behind there, cleaning away a lot of stuff in the old picnic grounds. Surrounded by water? Jeff Allen of the World Monuments Fund has been coming to Babylon since after the fall of Saddam's regime. The World Monuments Fund recently received a $500,000 grant from the U.S. State Department to help restore Babylon. Today, a curious hybrid, part crumbling ruins, part hastily built backdrop to Saddam's megalomania. He styled himself the reincarnation of the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar II, building a hill overlooking Babylon, and on the hill a palace, so he could bask in Iraq's glorious, distant past. Saddam tried to claim Babylon as his own. ISIS would simply destroy it if it could. They haven't reached Babylon, but the war has sucked away money from the effort to preserve it, says archaeologist Eddie Musa. The center government and local government. This is the reality. No money, no support. With help from the World Monuments Fund, the State Board for Antiquities has used laser scanners to document every single brick in Babylon's iconic Ishtar Gate. The important thing about this kind of documentation, explains engineer Salman al-Khalidi, is that if ISIS vandalized this site, we can restore it because we have precise specifications. Unfortunately, ancient sites in northern Iraq ransacked by ISIS, including Nineveh and Hatra, were never scanned. Excavations began here in the 1800s, interrupted by one war after another. As a result, some areas of the site have long been neglected. Uh, we're looking at the remains of the Tower of Babylon. Uh, what you see today is all that's left, a very large and tall tower. And others untouched for years. All right, so... We're a bit off the beaten track here in Babylon. Tourists don't come to this part, and hardly any tourists come to Babylon itself. Of course, we've just seen the remains of the Tower of Babel. Now we're going to see some old pit that was dug more than a hundred years ago by German archaeologists. It's still just a pit, but it was the heart of ancient Babylon. The Temple of Marduk is sort of the political, cultural, cosmological, religious center of the Neo-Babylonian period. This was the largest city of its kind during this period, and this was the center of action. So much still to uncover, so little to do it with. Bedouin and CNN, Babylon, Iraq. Okay. I just find that kind of interesting that there's at least talk about that and there's monies being given to restore it. 
In December of 2013, the UN actually decided to fund rebuilding of ancient Babylon, mainly, of course, with our money, um, as always. But as you saw here, there were the remains of the Tower of Babel out there. It's just the foundation. And then he talked about how the center of ancient Babylon was the Temple of Marduk. It was a religious center, a cult center. And that's interesting to take note of because when it comes to the body politic of this world system, it's always the religious, which is the means of controlling people, married with the commercial. That's what politics is. It's religion, man-made religion, married to man-made commercialism. That's what it is. That's what it is. Whether it's a religion that has a supernatural God or a religion that has man as its God. Religion is used to control the masses and the commercialism is, is used to get the resources of the masses to fund itself. And so even in ancient Babylon, it was the religious temple of Baal worship that was the center of its commercialism. It's interesting that in Muslim mythology, that's what it is, they're looking for a messiah. Uh, Muslims look for a messiah. Now when you read about their messiah in their traditions, he looks a whole lot more like what we see in the scriptures as Antichrist. That's exactly who he is. He fits the detailed descriptions of Antichrist in the Bible. And Muslims believe that Babylon will be his capital. So these things are interesting. I always I ask myself, looking back at history, and this has been years ago, and we may not have asked ourselves these questions back then, but why in the world did the U.S. go into Iraq in 1990? Why did we go in there? It was like, okay, we've got to liberate Kuwait. Well, they didn't take Saddam Hussein out. We'd let him continue to have power. He was shooting Scud missiles at, at Israel. The U.S. military had the uh, ability to easily go in there and take him out, and they didn't do it. Why? And then why did we expend so many resources and lives to go back into Iraq in 2003 and basically accomplish nothing? I mean, Saddam Hussein's government was overthrown. There was all this talk about weapons of mass destruction. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was a lie fed to us by the Bush administration. How many lives? I mean, young men and young women even that lost legs and arms and are all messed up in the head now because they went to Iraq. Why? What did we accomplish? All that's there now is a power vacuum. There's got to be more going on here. There's got to be more going on, and I believe it's probably related to the ancient city of Babylon and resurrecting it from the desert. It's all about globalism. It's about those, the elite that want a one-world government and perhaps a future world capital at Babylon. It would make sense. Is this a literal city that's being referred to here in verse 8? Or is it referring to the world system? that's modeled after Babel in the book of Genesis and the ancient empire of Babylon from where Baal worship came. Is the reference to Babylon geographical? Is it the geography that's important? Or is this a political reference to a system? Does it really matter if there's a city in, located where ancient Babylon was? Does it really have to, does there really have to be a city there for there to be a Babylon? No, Babylon, the world system that began with Nimrod, is alive and well today. And so 
Maybe the city will be rebuilt, maybe not. I don't think the Scriptures are clear. I wouldn't be surprised if overnight one day we wake up and there's this thriving modern city there. I think we have a clue though that this is bigger than a geography reference. Turn to Revelation 17.5. What we have summed up in one verse here in chapter 14 verse 8 we'll find when we get to Revelation 17 and 18 is spelled out in detail. The angel announces the fall of Babylon. Revelation 17 and 18 describe in detail how this fall is accomplished. It's both the religious element of Babylon and the commercial element, both of which make up the body politic. It says in Revelation 17.5, talking about the whore that sits on the beast, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So that word mystery here indicates that, it's more, that it's, this is more than just a literal city in a specific location. This is a mystery. It's something bigger than that. There's already a precedent for using other names to refer to something else symbolically in Revelation. Turn back to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 8, we're talking about God's two witnesses. You see, the law and the prophets, just like they came before Christ, just like they were seen with Christ, will come again before His second coming. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets will return. Two street preachers in Jerusalem. We've talked about that. And when they're killed and their bodies lie in the streets before their resurrection... It says in Revelation 11.8, Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom, Egypt. Now what city is he talking about? Where also our Lord was crucified. So here we have Jerusalem called Sodom and Egypt in a spiritual sense. And we have Babylon referred to as Mystery Babylon. So I think this is more than just a literal city in the deserts of Iraq. This is a judgment against the entire world system. What we have today, this globalism today that wants to bring everybody together under one government, under one language, is the same spirit that drove men to gather together on the plain of Shinar after the flood and to try to overthrow God. It's the spirit of Babel. And one day that spirit will be destroyed. That system will be destroyed. God scattered... Men at Babel, all over the world, confounded their languages. And now we're coming back to where everybody is able to communicate through one language medium, which is English. It's working its way back. The system's trying to work its way back. But just like in the book of Genesis, God will stop it. It won't succeed. We'll get more into that in detail in terms of how that fall is accomplished in Revelation 17 and 18. But when we think of the world system, it's got two elements. It's got a religious element and a commercial element. The politic, the world politic. <coughs> religious and commercial. Either way, whether the city of Babylon is rebuilt or not, whether it becomes a capital of the one world government or not, or whether that capital is in Rome or in some other city that spiritually is Babylon, 
Either way, the world's false political system is going down. And it's going down suddenly and with a big bang. Turn to Revelation 16. This is proof, again, that what we're talking about is bigger than one city in modern-day Iraq. It's tied to all the nations of the world. It's the world system. It's globalism. Globalism is Babylon. Romans, I mean, Revelation 16, 19. This is when the seventh uh, vial is opened. Um, the seventh vial. Remember, the seven vial judgments are what proceed from the seventh trumpet. The seven trumpet judgments are what proceed from the seventh seal. Going back toward the beginning of the book. But when this seventh angel pours out his vial... There's a great voice out of heaven that says, It is done. What the angel is announcing. There's voices and thunders and lightnings. And then look what happens in verse 19. And the great city, this is Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And look, look what happens next. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wrath of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. God's going to give the cup of His wrath to the nations. The same cup that Jesus drank for us. Jesus said, Lord, if it be Your will, let this cup, this cup of His wrath. And He drank it for us. But that wrath's going to be poured out. Notice how this mention of Babylon is tied to all the cities of the nations. So again, this is bigger than one city. When that wrath is poured out, when Babylon falls, it says an earthquake causes all the cities of the nations to fall. There's a day coming when an earthquake is going to topple all of these cities, all of these commercial centers around the world. Centers of such evil and wickedness will be toppled in an instant. That's a mighty earthquake. That's amazing. Babylon will fall. There's more than a literal city being judged here, though there may be a literal city on that site. Back in chapter 14, 8, let's look at the text. Babylon is fallen. Notice two phrases here. That great city. There's a commercial element. It's a great city. It's a civil system. It's commercial. That great city, why? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There's also a religious element. This reference to fornication is the spiritual fornication that is man-made religion. All man-made religion is spiritual fornication against the Creator God. Just like it was in the days of Cain. Just like it was in the days before the flood. Just like it was with Nimrod and ancient Babylon and all idolatry. It's spiritual fornication. So we have a commercial and a religious element referred to here. When we think of politics, there's two things we need to do when we try to judge or understand a politician. Number one, always follow the money. Follow the money. There's always a money element, a commercial element. Follow the money. Secondly, with any politician, with any political party, there's always an advancing of a man-centered religious system. That's how 
Politics controls the masses. Now, it may be an atheistic system that puts man as God, like we have here in America. It may be a system that pays lip service to the God of the Bible. But it ultimately seeks to control man's thoughts. And so with any politician, with any political party, there's always a commercial and a religious element. And we, we need to be careful putting our trust in any politician. There's always other forces driving it's that world system. Any man-made government is built upon the foundation of the world system that started with Nimrod. Our founding fathers made a good attempt to establish something better, something that would be the best possible alternative to a government ruled by God. But it failed. And it is failing. Why is it failing? It's just like our founding fathers said that our Constitution is made for a moral and God-fearing people. It's wholly inadequate to judge anything else. That's why our Constitution is not much more than a piece of paper nowadays. Because we are not a moral and a God-fearing people. What we have today, though there is a remnant in this country, is part of the world system. And it will fall. Don't put your hope in it. Praise God for politicians that come along from time to time that at least seem to act to protect our freedoms. We can thank God for that. For people that at least pay lip service to God and, 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 and do things that advance our freedoms to carry out the gospel. We can praise God for that, but ultimately it's going to fall. It's part of the world system. The body politic, the commercial element, the religious element. When we're talking about this body politic that the angel announces the destruction thereof, I think we need to go back and look at its origin. What is the origin of the world's politic? The world's system? Babylon, the system. The origin goes back before the Tower of Babel. It goes all the way back before the flood. Turn to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. I'm going to read the first 17 verses here. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Notice this statement here, even the original language, I've gotten a man from the Lord. There's an element of surprise here. I'll talk about that in a little while. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain is the father of the world politic. He's the father of, the man, of man-made religion. And he's the father of the world's commercial system. What's the first thing he did when he went out from the presence of the Lord? He built a city. And he named it basically after himself because he named it after his son. The city, which is a center of all sorts of evil and ungodliness and always has been, began with Cain. That's where the world system began. Cain's the father of man-made religion. What does man-made religion say? It says, I'll come to God, or whatever I consider to be God, on my own terms. Not on God's terms. God's terms were a blood sacrifice. But Cain thought he could do it his way. Cain's the father of all man-made religion. Spiritual father. All of them. All the isms go back to him. Even churchianity. Doing things man's way. He's also the father of the commercial center. When we read this story and we go to verse 7, it's interesting because God says to him, you know, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do well, if you sin... It says here a strange phrase, Sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. What does that mean? It's interesting when you look at the original language here, because the word for sin that God says lies at the door is the same word that's used for sin offering. Because in the, with the sin offering, with the lamb, that lamb actually became the sin. Just like Christ became sin. Even though he was without sin, He became sin on that cross and was judged. So, basically what's happening here is Cain's got too much pride to go from his brother. He doesn't offer the right sacrifice, but God in His grace gives him another chance and says, look, a sin offering's lying at your door. In fact, he'll stay there. His desire will be toward you and you can rule over him. You don't even have to go catch him. He's right there. God sent a sin offering to Cain lying right there at his door. Cain didn't even have to chase him down. It was right there for him. So God gave him an opportunity to give the right offering and sent the offering to his door. And yet he refused. He refused. And he learned a hard lesson. 
You don't come to God on your own terms. God's terms have always been Messiah. In fact, this was very clearly stated in the presence of Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The very first mention of the Gospel. And then God killed two animals and shed their blood and clothed Adam and Eve with their skins. God made it very clear that the blood sacrifice would point toward the seed of the woman and that His terms would be Messiah. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, Abel understood this. And that's why it says in Hebrews, by faith, that is faith in a Messiah, a coming Messiah, Abel more excellent sacrifice than Cain and was accepted. Cain refused. And then he did, in verse 8, exactly what the world system ever since has always done to those it cannot control. To those more righteous. He slew him. He killed him. That's what religion does. Religion does to those it cannot control exactly what Cain did here to Abel. Go read the history of the Roman Catholic Church and what it did to Bible believers. And then say that's Christian. Then say Catholics are Christians. Come on. 50 million Bible believers between A.D. 500 and A.D. 1500 alone were murdered. How many Jews were killed by the Catholics? Hitler's final solution was just Catholic dogma going all the way back to the early days of the Catholic Church who wanted to usurp the priestly authority given to Israel in the Old Testament. That's what religion does. Turn to 1 John 3. It's what the world system does. When it can't control you, it gets rid of you. 1 John 3.11 John says, writing to believers, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. What we're called to do is the opposite of religion. Love one another. That's brethren in Christ loving brethren in Christ. This is not, the love one another is never talking about going out here and just accepting all the world's sins and just buddying up with everybody and going around talking about God doesn't judge and we just love and accept everything and I can't judge you or you know, I don't know if that's right or wrong to each his own. That's not love one another. Love one another in the Scriptures in the New Testament is always the love of the brethren in Christ for the love of the brethren in Christ. Half of these people out here in these churches that talk about love, love, love don't love their brethren in Christ. They're always criticizing everybody else that claims to be a Christian. And they just love the world but hate their brethren. That's wicked. That's religion. But John says here that we're to love one another. Not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. So here we have Cain compared to the world that hates the Christian. Cain and his hatred for Abel is compared to the world that hates the believer. Cain's the father of the world system. The comparison's drawn right here. And that's what the world system does. It slays those it cannot control. That's what religion does. It just like Islam, Islam's religion, it kills those that don't submit. 
The Bible and the message of the Bible has never been that way. God used Israel to judge the sins of nations, but there was always, always an opportunity for people to be delivered by putting their faith in the God of Israel. Rahab is an example of that in Jericho, a wicked city. God always gives an opportunity to repent. Beware, beware the way of Cain. The way of Cain is the world system that will one day fall. And beware lest we be sucked into it. Cain's mentioned again in the book of Jude. In the context of false teachers, they represent the way of Cain. Those that try to draw men after man-centered religion, man-centered churchianity. Coming to God on their own terms. It says in verse 11 about false teachers. We're given detailed description of what false teachers look like. And it's so clear, based on these descriptions in the Bible, who these false teachers are. We can see them very clearly, but oh, we don't want to judge. It's like the, script, the more Scriptures warn us about things, the more blind we are to it. It's, it's amazing. Who are we to be critical of Israel for rejecting His Messiah? We, the church, are just as guilty of rejecting the clear revelation of God. It's amazing to me how many are sucked into these false teachers when the Bible so clearly identifies them. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. The way of Cain. I preached a message years ago on the way of Cain. And we need to beware. We need to beware of his philosophy. What was his philosophy? It says it back in Genesis 4 that he, Abel, took a lamb and offered a blood sacrifice that God required that in the process of time, Cain who was a tiller of the ground, brought of the fruit of the, gar- of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Cain's philosophy was pragmatism. I'm going to do what's practical for me. I'm a farmer. I grow vegetables. God ought to accept that. That's practical. Pragmatism. Beware the way of Cain. His philosophy. Pragmatism. Pragmatism governs the churches today. Our ministries are based upon what we think is practical and will reach people. What will get more people in the door. Why are we trying to get more people in the door? with no concern for the ones that are already here. If we put our time into discipling the believers that were already here so they could go out and win people to Christ, we wouldn't have time to worry about who comes through the door. We could see a lot of fruit from just a handful of believers. But again, it's the world politics. Follow the money. Why do they want people coming in the door? When people come in the door, that's more money in the offering plate. When people come in the door, that's more people to control. A lot of our churches today are built on this world system. Beware Cain's offering. What was Cain's offering? It was a bloodless offering. Had no blood. Couldn't cover sin. Man, the way of Cain is everywhere in the church and in the world today. What makes people right with God is a bloodless offering. Being a good person. Tolerating everybody. Where's the cross? Where's the blood? It's not even talked about anymore. All of this offering we offer up to God in our society, all this tolerance and all this nonsense, it's a bloodless offering. I was listening to an interesting set of sermons. It's really, really good. It's uh, preached by Keith Green back in 1982. It's four parts called What's Wrong with the Gospel? I've actually linked them on my website where you can watch them. And it is a solid, solid message about things, even in 1982, that the church was guilty of taking away from the gospel, of adding to the gospel, and it was just solid. I didn't realize he was such a solid preacher. 
I mean, it was there's clear gospel in his music, but just a solid preacher, never ranted and raved and screamed, hollered, could say very bold, cutting things, but in a gracious way that just made you want to listen, even if it was talking about you. But he talked about how the blood was missing from the gospel. A bloodless offering. Beware of Cain's legacy. What happened to Cain ultimately in his system? It was erased. None of Cain's descendants survived the flood. Completely destroyed. His legacy is the exact same legacy that will one day be the system that is descended from him spiritually. What happened to Cain, he was erased, will one day happen to Babylon. It'll be erased. So beware of these things. Don't get sucked up into it because it'll be destroyed. It'll fall. And it cannot save. A bloodless offering cannot save. There's no remedy for man-made religion. There's no remedy for the body politic. Only judgment. The judgment announced here in Revelation 14.8. That's why it's very important that we heed these words. Revelation 18. Again, 17 and 18 are discussing the fall of Babylon in more detail. The fall of both the religious and the commercial elements. Revelation 18.4-8 And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of the system. That ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath hath filled fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. In one day! Death and mourning and famine. And she shall utterly be burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. This is the body politic, the world system, Babylon. And that ultimately involves our country, our nation, and our government in a single day, gone. Just like Israel became a modern nation in a single day, the world system will fall in a single day. Why? Because strong is the Lord God who judges her. Come out of her. Come out. Don't be a part of that. We as Christians need to come out of this system and not be a part of it. Our churches shouldn't look like the churches of the world. Our fellowship shouldn't look like the fellowship of the world. Our trust, our fears, our sorrows shouldn't look like those of the world. We shouldn't put our trust and faith in health insurance. My wife and I have no health insurance. We haven't had it for years. And part of that is we just don't want to be part of a system that puts its faith and trust in a man-made grid when ultimately our health and our well-being is in the Lord. I'm not saying you shouldn't have health insurance. Thank God I don't get penalized for it this year. There was an executive order by our president that stopped that, so I was able to save over $1,000 in penalties. But we just don't want to be a part of a system. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of putting my trust in man-made entities. You actually think your well-being is dependent upon an insurance company that will do everything in its power not to pay out? 
You think your well-being is in a system that funds abortions and transgender surgeries and all other kind of craziness? That's why I like these Christian cooperatives where you can pool your resources to help one another out with your health needs. There are some in here that are part of that. Praise God. We've just elected not to go that route. We have a limited income. I'm okay with that. God provides for our needs and we're healthy at this time. We may have to change things, but that's all part of the system. Don't put your hope in that. Don't put your trust in that. Don't let your well-being or your peace of mind be in an insurance policy. Let it be in the Lord God. He's strong and He judges all these things. To better understand the origins of this system, we have to dig a little deeper into the Genesis record. Cain's obviously a spiritual father, but it's real interesting when we look at genealogy. Genealogies are there for a reason. They teach us a lot. They teach us a lot. Um, Lessons of history. Those of us that don't know our history, God put it there for a reason. We're doomed to repeat it. We're doomed to make the same mistakes. Sometimes when it comes to the history of our Bible-believing forefathers, we're doomed not to repeat their history because we don't know it. It's also amazing how history repeats itself. When we had this, these missiles our president ordered to be fired into Syria recently, claiming that the Syrian leader's government, Assad, had ordered a chemical attack on a village. Why would he do that? I mean, the guy's winning his civil war. Why would you fire chemical weapons into a city that you're getting ready to conquer anyway, knowing the condemnation that would come from the world? I believe it was all a bunch of garbage. But it reminds me of history repeating itself. I thought about in the late 1890s, there was a call, there was a desire by people of power and influence for America to go to war against Spain. There was no need to go to war against Spain. Spain was weak, it was failing. And then all of a sudden there was this American ship in the Havana Harbor that blew up, the USS Maine. And it was all just immediately decided that the Spanish had blown it up with a mine. Oh, we've got to go to war, we've got to go to war. They sunk the USS Maine and before you knew it, war was declared. And we had the Spanish-American War, something that a lot of people don't know much about. That's where Teddy Roosevelt got his fame. Charging up the, what was the name of that hill? San Juan Hill. And America conquered Cuba and eventually began to build its own overseas empire. Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines were under American control for a while. But there was all this clamor for war. When no one ever really knew what happened to that ship. In fact, it was researched as late as 1976 and it was decided based on some research, that it was just a fire in the boiler room. There was no mines. The Spanish didn't do it. But it was used to create a war. And that's exactly what's happening today. This so-called chemical attack is being used to try to draw us into war. They're up in this world that won't war. They want it because they profit from it. It's Babylon. It's the world system. Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, they want war because they profit. They gain control. What is it that brought America out of its depression? World War II. The American government knew the Japanese were coming. They allowed them to attack Pearl Harbor. Wake up. 
Because if that happened, then the American people would back the war. And we could go to war, and it would bring us out of our financial troubles. Don't think this kind of stuff's not going on behind the scenes. Doesn't mean that our ancestors who fought weren't heroes. But there's a world system that's at work. There's always a spiritual element. And history repeats itself time and time again. It's almost like we're living today in the spring of 1917. We elected a president that wanted to get the United States out of these foreign wars. We elected somebody we thought we would be a president for peace who would focus upon our problems and quit worrying about the rest of the world. But all of a sudden, we're firing missiles into Syria. All of a sudden, we're talking about war with North Korea. It's exactly what happened in 1917. The people of this country elected a president, Woodrow Wilson, who ran on a campaign platform of staying out of Europe's problems. We're not going to get involved in Europe's wars. We're going to stay out and focus on our own. And they elected him. And what happened? Not very long after that, the no-war president was drawn into war. And how many thousands and thousands and thousands, millions, when you consider uh, all the allies, I think it was several hundred thousand Americans, ended up dying in a war that accomplished absolutely nothing. The only thing World War II accomplished was it guaranteed, I mean, World War I accomplished was that it guaranteed World War II. It's the same story over and over and over again. War's coming. We know it is. The Bible speaks of it. It's like we're living in the days of Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. It's coming. It's the world system. Let's understand it for what it is and not be sucked in. We must learn the lessons of history, but we don't. The only thing men ever learn from history is that they never learn from history. And the church is just as guilty as the Jew, and both are just as guilty as the world. I want to look a little bit at the biblical timeline because it sheds some interesting light on this world system and where it began and how it re its head rises up every so often. It's always been there. If you study the biblical genealogies and you go by when the, what the Bible calls years and ages, I think we can trust the biblical timeline. We learn that the world was created in approximately 4th and 4 B.C. This is based on the biblical genealogies. I've talked about this years ago in, into this church. I preached on, on, uh, on creation and the timeline. And uh, the world's about 6,000 years old. A lot of people laugh at that. But there's plenty of observable scientific evidence out there that would demonstrate these things to be reasonable and true. There's no observable scientific evidence that would contradict this biblical timeline. I could go into a lot of different things today and I've preached about it. But please understand that evolution in the billions of years that are assigned to this world and this universe is based on a Pre, a religious presupposition that there is no God. It's based upon a fossil record that is assumed to be a certain age. It's, it's circular reasoning. But there's plenty of reasons to believe this is reasonable and true. I accept the Bible to be the Word of God, so I believe this is when the world was created. I don't care who laughs. But we learn that it was 130 years later in 3874 B.C., that Seth was born to replace Abel. Seth was a godly seed given in place of Abel. If you go back to Genesis chapter... Um, let's see. Uh, 
verse four, chapter 4, verse 25, and um, it says, Adam knew his wife again and bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. It's at this point that God's reserving to Himself a godly line. Men that would call upon Him and not forget Him as Cain would do. So it was about 130 years from creation until the birth of Seth. The fall probably happened very quickly. Adam and Eve weren't living in peace and love and innocence for years and years. The fall happened quickly. Satan got in there quick. Could have been a matter of weeks. Quick. The Edenic state was short. And then we get to Genesis chapter 4.1. Adam knows his wife and she bears Cain and her response is, I've gotten a man from the Lord. That word there in the original Hebrew is male. I've gotten a male from the Lord. Well, God told you how to have children that you would multiply. Why would there be a surprise that you would have a child? No, there's a surprise because he had a man. Or as I seem to think, I have finally gotten a man from the Lord. If you go down to um, uh, verse 17 of chapter 4, it says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived in bare Enoch. So when Cain fled, he had a wife. And people say, well, where did Cain get his wife? That's not possible. The Bible can't be true. Well, there's 130 years that passed between... Creation, creation probably, I mean, the fall probably happened less than a year. So you're like 129 years passed between Abel's, between uh, the creation and Abel's murder, which would have been very close to uh, Seth being born, 130 years. Seems to me that Cain wasn't Adam and Eve's first child. Seems to me she was surprised because she'd already had some children and they were women. Where was Cain's wife? It was his sister, of course. 130 years went by before Seth was born. Seems to me that I wouldn't stand and fight dogmatically about this, but when you look at the Hebrew text, there's an element of surprise here that she got a man-child. Where did Cain get his wife? It was his sister. Adam and Eve were being fruitful and multiplying just like God said. 130 years. It was probably 100 years that went by before Cain and Abel, at least a hundred years before he murdered his brother. So you had a hundred years of time when Adam and Eve were having children and their children would go up and having children. A hundred years. Do you know that in 1900, the population in the United States was only 76 million people. In 2000, a hundred years later, it was 282 million people. Almost four times. In a hundred years. Why would it have been difficult for Adam and Eve, two people, to produce a whole group of people within a hundred years' time? Especially in the days when men lived to be great ages and their DNA hadn't been mutated or corrupted like ours is today. They could have had kids left and right. Twins, triplets, who knows? But there were children born and Cain easily took a wife. His older sister, probably. 130 years later, Seth is born. Seth has a son named Enos. 
And it's in, when Enos is born, it says in Genesis 4, 26, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain's line is traced. It's traced there in Genesis. Um, right there in Genesis chapter 4. But then we go immediately to the genealogy or the book of the generations of Adam through Seth. And in terms of discussing this genealogy, it says men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, God began to reserve to Himself a faithful remnant amidst complete man-centered apostasy that was being drawn to cities. God had a remnant. The Bible says in Acts 4 that God never leaves Himself without witness. He always had a witness. And He had a witness before the flood. Why are we given these, this genealogy here? It's a record of the witness of God. Enos had a son named Canaan. Canaan had a son named Mahalalel. Then came Jared, Methuselah, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Enoch is in here. Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. So from Adam to Noah, we have ten generations. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Turn to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 describes for us... Um, wait a minute, that's not correct. Genesis 5, I'm sorry. Genesis 5. 22 through 24. Let's go down the line here. Down to Enoch. The book of Jude says that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. When we look at this genealogy, Enoch is the seventh from Adam. So there are no gaps or gene gaps in this genealogy. Some people say, well, some of the names were left out. Well, if that's the case, then the New Testament's wrong. Because Jude says he was the seventh from Adam. It says that Enoch walked with God, chapter 5, verse 22, after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So after Methuselah was born, Enoch walked with God. He had more sons and daughters. You see, these men had sons and daughters. There were lots of lines springing up. But for whatever reason, this one line is traced because these sons and daughters weren't following God. They weren't calling upon God. There was only a single line, only a single remnant. Enoch issues a prophecy. The book of Jude records this. Jude verse 14, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these false teachers, false apostasy that was rampant in the days before the flood. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch is prophesying the judgment of God 
ultimately against things he was seeing in his own day. Ungodliness. Wicked things being said about God. Mockery of God the Creator. These are all the things that were taking place prior to the flood. Enoch walked with God and God took him. Enoch, before the flood, is a type of the church. There's types and antitypes throughout Scripture. Paul says these things are written to teach us, to warn us, everything in the Old Testament. Enoch was a type of the church. He walked with God, and God raptured him out before the judgment of the flood. Noah is a type of Israel. God preserved him through the judgment of the flood. God takes the church out of the judgment of the tribulation. He preserves Israel through it. God is consistent. Enoch had a son named Methuselah. Methuselah, the oldest man that ever lived, even his name was prophetic. And it reflected the preaching of Enoch. The name Methuselah meant his death will bring judgment. His name was prophetic. And he lived longer than any other man, 969 years. The year that Methuselah died is when the flood came. The prophecy was fulfilled. Lamech, the son of Methuselah, prophesied concerning his own son, reflecting a faith in God that Noah would be used by God to bring comfort. Lamech died five years before the flood. All of these men were dead before the flood except for Noah, his sons and their wives, and Noah's wife. And Methuselah died the year of the flood. When he died, the rains came. Noah, it is said, was 600 years old at the flood. If you turn to Genesis chapter 6, I don't want to read the first part of the chapter, but there was a lot of wickedness going on in the world. The angels, the sons of God came down and saw the daughters of men and lusted after them. And they came down and communicated with, uh, with men. And as a result, uh, uh, supermen or demigods were born. The same things we hear about in ancient mythology. The giants. The DNA of man was corrupted. Completely corrupted. But it says of Noah, in chapter 6, verse 9, that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. That means a righteous man. Righteousness was by faith. It says in Hebrews that... Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain and therefore obtained the witness that he was righteous. His righteousness was by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Noah was a just man because his faith was in God. And it says he was perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. The phrase there, walked with God, is the same thing that was used of Enoch, his uh, great-grandfather. Walked with God. What does it mean he was perfect in his generations? Well, when you read the very first part of Genesis, you see that man's DNA was corrupted because of all this fornication with angelic beings. Noah's line was not corrupted. This line was not corrupted by what happened in Genesis 6. He was perfect or complete in his genealogy. That word generations means genealogy or his DNA. It wasn't corrupted by this satanic seed. Why was Satan's Satan's? Why were these angels mingling with men? Because Satan was seeking that seed for himself. The seed of the woman, it was prophesied, would crush the seed of the serpent. Satan knew that he he was given a seed, and he was trying to make it. His seed, of course, is his Superman, Antichrist, and the Messiah will crush his head quickly. 
The word perfect here doesn't mean without sin. The word perfect means complete. It doesn't mean sinless. Anytime you see the word perfect in the New Testament referring to Christians, it's not sinless. That's wrong. It means complete. What's the proof? Turn to Hebrews 5. Anytime you see perfect, it means complete. Unless the context says otherwise. Look what it says about Jesus in Hebrews 5, 8, 9. Though He were a son, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered, and being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Jesus was sinless. How could He be made perfect through suffering? How could He be made perfect through obedience if perfect means sinless? No, He was made complete as a complete and authentic substitute for us who fully understood the sufferings and temptations of man. Oh, God could understand them to an, because He created us, but how could He fully without experiencing it? And that's what Jesus did. He became complete, a complete sacrifice by experiencing man's uh, state by suffering as man suffers under the curse of sin, but yet remaining sinless. He became a perfect, complete sacrifice through His active obedience. We talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that is the Gospel. But without His active obedience to the things of God in this life, He wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. He would have been a blemished sacrifice. And a blemished sacrifice couldn't take away our sin. Yes, Jesus was God, but He was also man. Let's don't forget about His, man, His human nature while we uplift His divine nature. You know, a lot of people want to talk about His human nature and downplay the fact that He was divine. Let's not us be guilty of preaching His divine nature and downplaying the fact that He was human. That's what made Him a perfect sacrifice. 100% God, 100% man. Why did He have to be 100% man? Because only a man could suffer the sins or the, the, the punishment for man's sin. Why was He God? Because only God could suffer the eternal wrath of God against sin in a moment of time and yet survive. God became a man for us. It's important. But this Noah was complete in his generations. It was uncorrupted by what's described there in Genesis 6. Peter tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a street preacher. He preached probably for around 120 years. God said, I'm not going to strive with man any longer there in Genesis. His years are 120. I'm going to give him 120 more years to repent and then it's over. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness. A type of Israel preserved through the flood. If we look at the genealogy, we see ten generations. Many lines came out. These, these men had sons and daughters that went out here and had sons and daughters. And some of them mingled with the descendants of Cain. And it, they mingled with angels that came down. It was a huge, big mass. Why is this line traced? Because it's God's witness amidst a corrupt world system where the wickedness of man was great 
and every imagination of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.5 And when the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6.11 Cain initiated this world system. It's where Babylon began. The father of man-made religion. The father of man-made commercialism. And the world system took hold quickly. And the earth quickly became full of violence and wickedness. Yet in the midst of that, God reserved a witness and a remnant. Babylon will fall. The judgment will come. But it will not come without God having given man ample opportunity to repent. Without God not... Uh, I don't want to use a double negative. The judgment won't come without God having left Himself a very clear witness. So when it comes, there'll be no excuse. There was no excuse for any of those that perished in the flood. None. They knew the truth. And God made sure of it. God reserved a witness unto Himself. The Bible says that when the coming of Christ draws near, Jesus said that it will be like the days of Noah. Just like those days. The world system that was overthrown then is going to be like the world system of today. And it too will be wrong. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 37-39 But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, even wicked stuff like angels fornicating with women, until the day that Noah entered in the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The flood that comes and takes them all away in the last days is the Messiah when His foot sets down on the Mount of Olives and a sword comes from His mouth. And those of all the nations that are gathered against Him to fight, the Bible says that their eyes will melt out of their sockets and their faces will melt and their tongues will disintegrate in their mouth. If you've ever seen that old movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they open up the Ark of the Covenant at the end, one of those guys, I don't know if it was the German guy, the Nazi guy, looks in there and his face just completely melts off. Well, where do you think they got that imagery? They got it from Zechariah 14. There's so much biblical illusion in all of these things around the world. People say we don't want the Bible, we don't believe the Bible, and yet they, even Hollywood alludes to it time and time. You can't escape it. But this will be just like the days of Noah. Judgment, the fall of the world system. And it's announced here in Revelation. It's nothing new. It's fallen before. It's a light thing for God to bring it down again. The only reason why it's not been destroyed until now is because God made a promise to Noah. He made a promise that He would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And God's kept that promise. Every time we see the rainbow, we're reminded of that. It's a shame that the homosexual crowd has usurped that symbol of God's faithfulness. Of course, it's not a seven-color rainbow that the homos use. Their rainbow flag only has six colors. Six is the number of a man. Very interesting. It's definitely done on purpose. But it'll be like the days of Noah. That's what we see today. Does that mean what happened in the days of Noah with those angels coming down and intermingling with men will happen again? Possibly. 
I've read stories about things that American soldiers have found in the caves in Afghanistan that I don't know if it's true or not, but it's interesting. I don't know why people would make that up. That kind of mirrors what we read about in the first part of Genesis 6. Wouldn't surprise me. It'll be like the days of Noah. Of course, Jesus goes on to describe here in chapter 24 that, that um, two will be in the field, two will be grinding at the stone, one will be taken, the other left. The word taken there is different than the word that's used earlier that says in the days of Noah the flood came and took them all away. The word taken, when we're talking about the two in the field and the two in the bed, is received. It's the same word that's used earlier in the book of Matthew where it says Joseph took Mary to be his wife. So Jesus goes on to describe the rapture. People will be taken in those days just like Enoch was who walked with God. That's a blessed promise there for the church. I've talked about Matthew 24 and the rapture in my teachings on that. I don't want to get into that more. But why am I tracing all this? Because I think it's important. The spirit of Cain resurrects himself again after the flood. And then time and time again throughout history, that world system has controlled things. After the flood, it's interesting to look at these genealogies and these ages that are given because, given because we learn some things we, don't, we just failed to see because we've never taken a closer look. We've never thought these things were important. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. That means he died two years before Abraham was born. We think of one man's life and another man's life and all of these years between Noah and Abraham. Before the flood, we have ten generations. Ten. I'm going to stop here in a minute. Ten generations. After the flood, we've got Shem... That's pretty good. I can remember all that. After the flood, we've got ten generations. So before the flood, God reserves a remnant through a single line, ten generations. After the flood, He reserves a remnant through a single line, ten generations. And when He gets to the tenth generation, He decides to do something different because of the world system. In here, we have Babel. We have men scattered across the face of the earth carrying this false system with them in their own languages, and then we have a sea of nations begin to develop. And by Abraham, God decides to do something different. Instead of preserving a witness through a single line, He's going to raise up a nation to be a witness in a sea of nations. So there's a parallel here I find very interesting. But the, bio, the tradition says that after the flood, we don't really learn much more about Noah. We know he uh, planted a vineyard and some, something wicked happened where his son and his grandson were concerned. We can kind of read in between the lines there. Tradition says that Noah migrated to the east after the flood. He lived another 350 years. And when we read um, the table of nations in Genesis 10, it kind of tells where all the peoples of the nations came from. Um, that uh, They all go back to Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we see the origins of all the European peoples the Caucasians, people like us, from Japheth. 
We see the origins of the African and Arabian peoples come from Ham. And then we see the origins of all the Oriental and the Aryan peoples, the Middle Eastern and the Aryan and the Central Asian peoples come from Shem. But there's no mention of the East Asian, the Mongolian people. The Mongolian people are the ones that are East Asians, Chinese and Japanese and Koreans and Mongolians and Southeast Asia. The, the native pe- the native pe- a lot of the native peoples here in North America, where'd they come from? They don't seem to be covered there in Genesis 10. Well, tradition says, it might have been Josephus, I can't remember, the Jewish historian said that Noah, Noah migrated east and took God's commandment to be fruitful and multiply literally. He and his wife fathered more children east of there. And that's, they became the uh, fathers or the progenitors of the, uh, the Mongolian peoples. In fact, uh, Chinese Christians talk about that. I think it's very interesting and a subtle proof of that is when you look at ancient Chinese or, or Chinese characters. Um, I just found a few of these online. They pay testimony to things that Noah himself would have known. The Chinese character for boat is made up of three characters. It's made up of the character for vessel, the number eight, and the character for people. So boat is a vessel with eight people. Well, we know the ark had eight people. And the Chinese character alludes to that story. Um, If we look at uh, the Chinese character for uh, the verb to covet or desire something, it's made up of several characters. It's made up of two trees plus woman equals to covet or to desire. Tree of life, tree of... Uh, the knowledge of good and evil, and a woman. The Garden of Eden. The story of the Garden of Eden is alluded to in this Chinese character. The Chinese character for to create comes from characters that refer to speaking, to dust or mud, and for life. Dust and mud are to, they become life and they walk. And then the verb to walk. Exactly what's described there in the book of Genesis concerning Adam's creation. The Chinese character for complete or finish is the number two plus a person plus the word home. Two people come together, they make a family or a home. It means to complete. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had children. They did what God told them to do. And then the word to forbid or to warn is two trees plus the character for God. God warned, you can eat of the tree of life, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's interesting that there's these Genesis allusions prior to the flood reflected in the Chinese language, even today. Well, that would make sense why those marks are there if Noah did migrate east and have more children. You could have a lot of children in a 350-year period. And... Uh, uh, they became the fathers of the Mongolian people. So all the races we have today go back to Noah and his three sons. There's nothing left of Cain. There's nothing left of that super race before the flood with the angels mingling with the, uh, the, the, the women, the, 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 the humans. Cain was a race, but his spirit endured. And it's going to pop up again after the flood. Um, I'm going to stop there today. Uh, there's just some real interesting things when we get into Noah's sons. We get down to Nimrod. Nimrod was the 13th from Adam 
via Ham. Canaan, the grandson of Noah, was the 13th from Adam, descended through Ham. What happened when Noah woke up from his drunken stupor? Something had been done to him. And he cursed someone. Who did he curse? He cursed Canaan. He didn't curse Ham. But he cursed Canaan, his grandson. Something happened. But then we go to the Gospel of Luke and we see in the genealogy of Christ where uh, Mary is traced all the way back to Adam that there's a Canaan that pops up right in here. A father-in-law, just like Joseph was the father-in-law. The cursed from Ham pops up in the genealogy of Christ. The curse becomes a blessing. The 13th from Adam, Nimrod, is a type of Antichrist. The 13th from Adam, Canaan, when you consider Luke's genealogy, is one who was cursed that became blessed. A type of Christ. He was cursed. He became a curse, the Bible said. Interesting to me. I wouldn't die on these heels. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but there's lots of gems in the Scripture and it's always pointing to Christ. The world system that will one day fall began long ago. And as Solomon, the wise one, spoke in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. When you suffer, when you have trials and tribulations, when bad things happen to you, it's the devil that makes you think you're unique. Not God. It's the devil that makes you think you're unique. When we do things here in this life, when our society succeeds, when we discover technologies, it's the evil one that makes us think we're better or unique amongst the world's generations. You know, we speak of men uh, decades and centuries and millennium ago as being somehow dumber than we are. Civilization before the flood was probably very advanced. But the blessings we endure are built upon the discoveries and the hard, works of, hard work of others. This idea that we're somehow unique, whether it's in our sufferings or in our blessings, is from the evil one. It's the spirit of Nimrod. It's the world system. And that world system will fall in an instant. Babylon has fallen. Let's don't be part of it. Let's come out from it. I won't be with you next week. I'm going to be down at Living Word Baptist sharing down there, Daniel and Jennifer, and they're going to go with us. Go see Brother Mike and step in for him. But when I come back, I want to look at this genealogy from Shem to Abraham, and then we're going to go down to Jacob. And there's some very interesting things here that all kind of demonstrate what God is doing amidst a corrupt world system. And it's, it's the same thing He's doing through us today as the church. Therefore, we should take our uh, call seriously. It would have been very easy for Moses to learn the details about the history of the world going back to Adam. Did you know that from Adam to Moses, it only required five generations to pass down that knowledge? When you look at the ages of men, there were five generational links that linked Adam to Moses. It would have been very easy for these things to be preserved when you look at the age. Very interesting. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk a little bit about Abraham's lineage. Uh, there's some things there. And then uh, I had to, this, I had, my sermon notes span two notebooks here. And then we're going to talk about how what happened at Babel 
was resurrected many times throughout history, and it seems to always be paired with attempts to eradicate the nation that God rose up to be a witness amongst a sea of nations. The spirit of Babel is always about destroying God's people. And we can, this will take us back to the seven heads of the beast that we talked about. Daniel chapter 2. And then we'll move a little further into the chapter. So a lot of very interesting things here. I don't mean to get sidetracked, but I think it just gives us a fuller understanding of the Scriptures. And it makes it very clear that God's Word's a wellspring of wisdom. The knowledge there is not surface level. It's not a secret knowledge like the Gnostics talk about. It's not a secret knowledge that only some can possess. It's a knowledge that's there for us if we'll study The Bible says, study to show yourself approved to God. That's written to every Christian. And God will reveal the secrets of the Lord. Those are there with those who fear Him, it says in the Psalms. All right, I'll be I did go to one o'clock. My goodness. Okay, let me pray over the food and Jamie and I are gonna have to get out of here. So thanks for indulging me today. Father, thank you for this time around your word. Thank you for the deep truths of your word that are available to all believers, because Your Spirit dwells within us and Your Spirit illuminates things. And if we'll study and we'll seek You, You'll reveal Yourself. The Bible says that the secrets of the Lord are with those that fear Him. And God, You've always been consistent in Your dealings with Him. You've always reserved unto Yourself a faithful remnant to be a witness in a corrupt world system. And we look forward to the day, Lord, when Babylon will fall. The world system will fall. And what comes will be what, as it was intended to be when this world was created and Adam and Eve were put in the garden. And we look forward to that day, Lord, to taste of those things and to rule and reign with You forever and to be free of this system. Until such time, Lord, may we be lights as these men centuries and centuries ago were lights in a dark time when men called upon You and walked with You. Help us to be like those men, like Enoch and Noah who walked with God, to be preachers of righteousness, Lord to be those who were faithful um, to shine in a dark world. That's what Israel was meant to do. She failed and God rose up a church to do her job and to provoke her to jealousy that she might repent and ultimately do what she was promised to do. And we just marvel how unsearchable are your riches and your ways, O Lord. They're past finding out, but your Spirit is good to reveal them to us. Encourage us in the Word, Lord. Use us this week and uh, bless the food we're about to eat. In our fellowship, we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.